Welcome to the Inspiring Social Entrepreneurs Podcast. My name is Fergal Byrne. Every week, I talk to inspiring social entrepreneurs and changemakers dedicated to building a better world. Here, they tell their stories, the highs and the lows, and share what they have learned to help other social entrepreneurs and changemakers on their journeys. I'm very pleased today to introduce Isaac Holman to the podcast. Isaac is a designer researcher focused on global health equity, working on complex health systems from the perspective of the poor and the marginalized. He's the co-founder of Medic Mobile, a non-profit technology company specializing in mHealth. Medic Mobile is guided by a mission to support community health workers and families using mobile and web tools to help register pregnancies, track disease outbreaks faster, keep stock of essential medicines. SSIR has been serving global leaders of social change for almost 15 years, be it quarterly magazine, online articles, podcasts, videos, webinars, and conferences. At its heart is a vision that collaboration between nonprofit, business, and government sectors is key to solving growing environmental, social, and economic justice issues. Find out more at ssir.org. So thank you very much, Isaac, for taking the time to speak to inspiring social entrepreneurs today. I'm very happy to be here. Great. So I'm very much looking forward to talking to you about the great work you're doing at Medic Mobile and um, how you how how you 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 see the future and some of the the, the important steps on your journey. Um, maybe a good place to start is if you could talk a little bit about your background and how you got started as a social entrepreneur. Absolutely. Um, so I'm from the U.S. I grew up in rural Oregon on a kind of a farm. My parents were both school teachers, but we had emus and we raised beefless, which are a lovely sort of sporting dog. And so I think from their experiences and growing up in that environment, um, starting your own little business and being entrepreneurial about it came kind of naturally to me. And uh, so years later in college, um, I was going to uni around the time that Facebook was starting. And um, I was also in college during the initial Obama campaign and um, the use of social media for social and political causes was kind of a big new thing. And I was part of a startup during my college years that was um, ended up building an iPhone app for community organizers. And that was a remarkable learning experience. Um, so it was actually later, um, heading into my last year at uni, that I um, had started making plans to work in sub-Saharan Africa. And it was initially attended as a gap year in between undergraduate and medical school. And uh, I was talking with a friend in Burundi um, who knew about my my background work in tech and kind of said, hey, we'd like an electronic medical record system. Um, and, you know, could you build us one of those? And truth be told, I really didn't have any background or training in health informatics. My undergraduate studies were in liberal arts and biochemistry. <laughs> uh, but I kind of had some familiarity with open source communities and I said, sure. And they also had a, a strong community-based health worker program. So this is the kind of program where 
you enlist lay people, give them some on-the-job training, and they go door-to-door to deliver care for their neighbors. Really basic health care. And so I started thinking about what if we could enable these community health workers to take part in the health information system in some way. So that was how I started thinking about mobile phones and how recently they had spread to much of that region. And I found my uh, the person who would become my co-founder, Josh, uh, just online because he was doing kind of similar work in Malawi and he was blogging about it. Uh, I found him through a, a, a global health listserv and we ended up being sort of brainstorm partners for, for a few months before eventually deciding to work together. And I think, you know, it's a common story for a lot of social entrepreneurs that once you get working, once you start doing something, you end up meeting people and making relationships, whether it's with partners, co-founders, or it's that first client, or uh, it's a community member who's, whose story really strikes a chord with you, and you end up recrafting what you're doing so that it makes sense in light of the practical opportunities that, that you begin to see. Right, right. Now, what was it or what is it? What's, what is the problem that, in a sense, you were trying to solve? So, you know, we got started the early projects in the summer of 2008. We were officially incorporated as a nonprofit by 2010. And so now by 2017, the, the scope and scale of our work has changed a lot. Um, we're, we've equipped... Um, well over 18,000 healthcare workers um, in these years. Um, around 13,000 of them are currently active. And um, so they're providing healthcare for over 8 million people. And we're able to build some really cool technologies. And we have a staff of more than 60 people now. So what we do today is different than how we started. But the, the core insight as we discovered it and, and worked on it over time was that in um, a lot of rural communities uh, around 2010, um, people were getting increasing access to basic phones and smartphones were not common in these communities. Uh, and so people interested in using this infrastructure for health services were thinking about voice calls and text messaging. And there have been a number of projects um, around the world, in particular in Africa, that kind of wanted to educate the general population by blasting large amounts of health information over text message, essentially kind of treating text messaging like radio as a broadcast medium. And what, what we showed was that text messages can be used for much more than that. They can be used to coordinate care. And for groups of community health workers to coordinate with each other, to seek advice from more central facilities, to seek new supplies, uh, to refer patients for care. Facilities could ask these community health workers to follow up with people who had missed appointments. And we were able to make the work that they do dramatically more efficient. You know, one later study showed that it was four times cheaper than standard approaches and 134 times faster. So those are crazy statistics, but it makes sense when you understand that most of what community health workers do is walk. 
they're going from door to door. They're looking for people to talk to them about health. And um, so really basic text messaging apps had a pretty big impact. And to this day, around half of our projects, or sorry, half of the health workers we support are using text messaging in various ways. And now we have a whole other half of what we do um, is with smartphones, tablets, and web applications, um, and um, more computing-intensive use cases like analytics for health systems. Right, right. And how important are community health workers? They're at the center of what we do, and they always have been. And it's one of the things that is just kind of a hallmark of our organization. They're important for a lot of different reasons. Um, probably the best is that they're the closest to the patients. And what we do is try to expand access to care. Um, and community health worker programs have been around for probably a century now. Um, and there have been isolated studies that show incredible gains in health outcomes, improving child mortality, improving maternal mortality, um, catching disease outbreaks. The challenge is that these are basically lay people. They have only on-the-job training. They're far away from facilities, and so these programs are pretty complex to manage. And there are doubts. There have been doubts for decades in policy circles that the, the best of community health worker programs can really be scaled up. And so what we're seeing is that with better digital support, um, community health workers can be trained to do more. They can move beyond just sort of outreach and community education, and they can actually do basic diagnosis and basic curative services. So they can treat people for malaria, for diarrheal diseases, for upper respiratory tract infections like pneumonia. And these are the biggest killers of children around the world still. Um, and so increasingly, you know, as we've grown, we're able to support the whole community health system. And that's including a wider and wider range of people, of technology users who are all community health workers. It includes nurses at facilities, it includes community health worker supervisors, it includes health system managers who use the data we collect, but community health workers are still very much at the core of what we do. Right, right, it's very interesting. And um, what were the technical challenges doing this? I mean, it sounds, as you say, you know, uh, basic uh, text messaging on uh, phones which weren't smartphones. And can you talk a little bit about the, the technical challenge and how long it took you to understand uh, and design the necessary tools? Um, I know this has been a long journey, but um, certainly in the initial uh, stage. Yeah, so when we started out, we were making use of existing open source technologies and applying them in a new way in a particular kind of community health context in which they hadn't been applied before. Uh, and so we had a really generative partnership in our early years with an organization called Frontline SMS. And they still exist. I think they do really good work. Um, not, not primarily or exclusively in healthcare, but in a wide range of kind of technology for 
um, grassroots development and humanitarian work. Um, to understand the challenge, I mean, that, it, it's really a constant ongoing process. And there are more and more pieces that we've thoroughly understood as we've had the capacity to address them. And inevitably, when you have very little capacity, when you're a couple of volunteers with no background in engineering and a knack for tinkering and just trying to help people, um, you solve the problems you can initially. And the first problems that we were solving had to do with basic implementation issues. You know, when we started our first programs, only about half, a little less than half of the community health workers we were working with had ever used the phone before. Most of the nurses um, and, and other community health worker managers who we were equipping to manage these programs, they hadn't used computers before. And so there was a lot of basic training, things like procurement, you know, to buy three or 400 phones in Malawi in 2008, 2009 was not a trivially easy undertaking. And it was something most global health organizations didn't have any expertise in. Um, and so really the basics of implementation was our, our first set of challenges to understand um, and to understand in a more nuanced way what the work, what a day in the life of a community health worker is like um, so that we could see how it was going to be most helpful for them to use technology. You know, that was the insight of moving beyond blast messages to coordinating Air. Um, after my first year in Malawi, so this was 2009-2010, um, we had a, a team meet up and we were just a few people at the time and I pitched two product ideas that were based on what I'd been seeing in Malawi for the last year and kind of tracking the, the industry and the available open source tools and what wasn't available. Um, the first was uh, application running on the SIM card. And um, the idea was that we really needed to do more structured data collection than text messaging allowed. But we needed to do it on basic phones because the electricity challenges were enormous. And at that time, a smartphone that needs to be charged every day or more than once a day just really wasn't an option in the places we were working. Additionally, people already knew how to use these basic phones to a large extent, and they had resources in their community, people who could teach them how to use basic phones. And so I really wanted to do data collection on a basic phone. And I, I realized that by putting apps on the SIM card, we could do that. Now, most mobile network operators offer some kind of value-added services on the SIM card. You could request news headlines or, you know, weather predictions or um, play trivia or things like that. We were the first to think about using this infrastructure for healthcare. And so I think, you know, that was an, an insight that came in my first year in Malawi. We spent another year and a half figuring out how to actually build that technology, partly because the initial idea was to just go and broker deals with mobile network operators. And that proved to be very difficult for a number of, of both obvious and surprising reasons. Um, and we ended up identifying a manufacturer of a parallel 
or thin SIM. So it's a paper thin SIM card and it slides underneath the ordinary SIM card. And so we could put our data collection apps on that thin SIM and then continue using the ordinary SIM card to connect to the mobile phone network. Um, you know, once we discovered this possibility, then building the software that would go on there. Um, so just, just for that, that one little discovery, you know, it was years in the making and it wasn't like we had an, a light bulb moment somewhere at the beginning and just got it. There were, there were many accumulative gradual insights along the way that made that possible. And it's since uh, I published academic papers on technology and we've used it with thousands of health workers. That's very interesting. And uh, I guess illustrates the complex nature of innovation in these kind of environments. And I guess um, you, 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 you emphasized in a, in a, at the beginning that you, you didn't re you weren't familiar with this landscape. Um, and, and presumably others that, that were still weren't doing this kind of thing. What, what, what are the lessons there in thinking about innovation in this kind of environment? Clearly it takes, you know, uh, it seems to be quite iterative. Um, it's, it, it, as you say, it, it evolves over time and, and time is important as well. And I know that you talk, uh, and, and you embody in your work, this whole, uh, question of human centered design. So I, I, maybe that's also something that would be interesting to get your perspective on. Absolutely. So our first projects were at St. Gabriel's hospital in Malawi and, um, Josh was there first, and I later lived there for a full year and then on and off for another two years. We spent a lot of time at St. Gabriel's, and they, they are an awesome hospital, and they have a very robust community health worker program, and we worked with them. We, we shadowed their work. We had many, many conversations. We gave them all kinds of demos and examples of what the technology could do and as we would have said at the time, the, the, these ways of using technology sort of came about organically, which is to say we didn't have a very formal process. And because we really went deep with them, it probably wasn't as important for us to have had a formal process because we really got to know each other. Later, as, as our work there was kind of getting traction, it was generating interest throughout the country, I was approached by someone from a large international nonprofit organization to kind of say, hey, this is pretty cool. Could you replicate it for us um, with a few changes in the south of the country? And um, that ended up being our first paid consulting engagement. And, um, you know, we hadn't gone into this work intending to have a business model. It sort of came about by people asking us, hey, we'd like to pay you. Could you, could you come do this for us? And Oh, sure, and, and trying to figure out how to do that well. Um, that first project, in hindsight, did end up going well. And um, it was celebrated by our, our partner. The nonprofit organization was our client. It was celebrated by the Ministry of Health. It ended up becoming part of the national strategy for the U.S. Agency for International Development in Malawi. But in the thick of action, that project was incredibly chaotic. The timelines were much shorter. There were a much wider range of stakeholders. And I was still discovering 
midway through the project that there were additional stakeholders I, I hadn't um, known about or reached out to. We found repeatedly that there had been communication gaps that either um, they expected the technology to do things that it didn't do or um, they only realized what they wanted it to do after they had begun using parts of it and so the requirements were changing as we went along. Um, it ended up in a lot of late nights and a lot of a lot of chaos. And after that project, I um, ended up writing this six-page internal memo about how implementation challenges and non-technical aspects of how to make these technologies work in organizations at a larger scale when we don't have months and months to just get to know people and let things emerge gradually. And one of my recommendations was that the organizationals are so organizational issues are so complex and the cultural differences are so large, not just between us and the people who use our technologies, but among our different clients and stakeholders. The cultural differences between a Ministry of Health and, say, somebody from a nonprofit organization may be uh, bringing us to the table. And so I said, you know, we need to do many ethnographies really for every project to figure out how people are already using technology and when they start using our tools, how they're wanting to use them, how they're actually using them, and then be more iterative. And it was through kind of talking about these challenges at conferences and with other people in the industry that um, someone introduced me to human-centered design. And it resonated with me immediately. It's an approach to design um, that has been strongly influenced by ethnography and um, that kind of approach to understanding people through field work. But it incorporates elements of actively prototyping and visual communication to get people more involved in a design process. Their uh, practices and ways of um, helping technology users have a real seat at the table to really influence a design process based on their understanding of their local working life. And it's been something that we you know, since 2010, we've embraced it formally, and, and I would say it's an ongoing apprenticeship for me. I'm still learning to be uh, uh, more expert and more human-centered designer as we go along. Um, and that's been the main topic of my graduate research for the last few years as well. Um, so it's, it's been a very good journey, and I think of a very important part of how we... Um, learn about the new health systems that we work in. You know, we work in 20 countries now. Um, and so there are a lot of similarities from place to place, but a lot of differences as well. That's very interesting because um, as you, 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 you point out very clearly, uh, each use can be very different, quite idiosyncratic, quite distinct, even presumably uh, geographically located close by or, or similar kinds of organizations. Uh, and 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 presumably this is the interface how how people use the technology. Does there come a point where once you've understood that, where you can start to get some benefits of scale 
because as you say, you're working in all of these different contexts, which may have slightly different, um, we'll call it uh, interface, <laughs> but you, you probably a better, a better way of describing that. But uh, once that is done, yeah, can can you add elements of scale or or, or your know, ability to do this uh, to replicate it on, on a much bigger level? Does that make sense? The question. Absolutely, it does. I, I think that um, scaling up an in intervention is something that happens gradually and accumulatively. Uh, I think it's important to understand that you don't ever just nail it and then scale it and the scaling is no more work or the scaling doesn't require additional changes. And this is something we always emphasize that a human-centered design process is ongoing. So it influences formative research, but it also influences how you make that transition from a smaller scale initiative to a larger scale one. And this always involves changes to the intervention itself and even more dramatic changes to how you organize support and maintenance of the intervention. Um, so economies of scale do happen, absolutely. Um, and I think that they, they, they come in a variety of ways, um, a lot of which have to do with familiarity, with building a more robust team that really knows what you're doing and what you're delivering. They come with, in our case, having working code that has all the bugs eliminated and um, no new feature requests pressing on our agenda. Um, but the, the myth that we're always keen to dispel is, is that scale isn't um, something that happens when you've nailed it and you can kind of just go on autopilot after that. Right. So would you say you're getting some nuance now in some of the issues about scaling some of these uh, uh, technologies or some of these use uh, cases? Because uh, presumably there will come a point where, you know, if, if each of these is very different, that, you know, when you're trying to really bring the, the, this solution to a wide number of users and, and as many as possible, that, you know, it, it becomes a very important question. It absolutely does. Um, just to give you a concrete example, you know, our first project was about 75 health workers. Um, and the next year we scaled that up to about 150, which at the time was actually relatively large for um, a community health worker program equipped with mobile phones. Um, now we have a number of projects that are well over 1,000 health workers. And uh, our largest partner organization, I think, has 4,000 health workers. And so when you compare and contrast what a 1,000-plus health worker implementation is like to a 100 health worker implementation, little tasks like um, how to manage the process that needs to happen when a phone is lost to, to understand, you know, did it break? If so, can it be repaired? 
how should it be replaced, um, making sure that there isn't any kind of deception going on, that uh, people didn't just sell it and say it was stolen, um, having procedures in place to report things to police if there was a genuinely stolen phone, um, figuring out what the end of the reasonable end of life is for phones. Um, so at what point is it three years in? Is it four years in? Should they just be replaced? Um, and then literally procuring all those phones when sometimes it'll be dozens or hundreds at a time. Um, at the scale of a hundred phones or a hundred health workers, all these tasks just kind of can get absorbed by routine staff as a matter of course. But to do them at a scale of it's 10 times that size, um, it ends up being unmanageable unless you put in place staff with those specific skills and you've trained people on what their specific tasks are. Yes. Yes. Now you mentioned going to conferences, very interesting going to conferences and talking about the challenges you had at the beginning, which led you to human centered design. Um, is there a similar discussion and debate, do you think, in at conferences about this question of, of, of scaling? And are there, is this something where uh, we are learning more in significant ways? In the in health and digital health community, which we participate in, um, I think that's very much the case. And I think it's also the case in the, the social entrepreneurship community, which we participate in. And the conversation is happening differently in these, these two communities. In mHealth or digital health, it's very influenced by um, the sciences by medical science by public health science and in the entrepreneurship community people are talking about building organizations uh, and so the topic of scaling is it's a particular area where i think there's really fruitful overlap for um the health community the global health community in particular um, in global mHealth, a lot of people are talking about the problem of these projects not growing beyond small pilots. They're not being sustained and or they're not being scaled up. Uh, and people are calling it pilotitis, you know, as if it were a kind of disease <laughs> that the community is facing. And there are big reports and lots of conversations at conferences about getting beyond pilotitis, which I think have been helpful. Um, but in some, in some circles, what you hear is, well, we just need more evidence. Um, we need more research. And, you know, some people say things shouldn't be still scaled up until we've done more RCTs to make sure they work or how well they work. And, I'm a, I'm a medical scientist myself. I do research, and as an organization, we're conducting several RCTs and planning more. But I think that kind of view that, oh, we just need more RCTs, and then scaling will just be this sort of thing that kind of automatically happens, is really a very naive 
few. And um, the in the in-health course I teach at the University of Edinburgh, we um, have a section on financing in-health and paths to scale. And there's a paper that we use called What's Your Endgame, which I find very helpful. Um, and it's, it's more for a general social enterprise, social innovation audience than it is for health per se. But they look at um, organizations that have managed to scale, social sector organizations that have managed to scale um, in the recent past, and basically analyze what their revenue models are and um, how they manage to do it. And it breaks down into around half a dozen different types of categories, things like um, full government adoption or full industry adoption or um, building your organization larger and larger and larger or open sourcing it uh, or um, you know, eliminating the problem that you set out to solve, for example, eradicating the disease. Mm. Uh, and it's, it's a very interesting way to think about scale in terms of the end game. And because it, when you think about it in that way, you realize that these organizations that have pursued different end games, the organizations look completely different in terms of the number of staff they have and the type of expertise they need to have on their staff and what the annual revenue size is. You know, if you go through the end game where your organization just keeps growing and growing and growing and you, you keep implementing the program in the same way, you need to find a, a way to raise a lot more money, whether this is income generating, generating activity or it's philanthropic money or it's, government implementation grants, you need to be a lot bigger than, for example, in the open source model. Fascinating. Fascinating. So in a sense, it's a strategic decision that needs to be thought about at the beginning, really. And uh, I guess, presumably, it, it needs also to uh, be matched to market conditions in and, and different uh, environments, social environments. Exactly. I would say it needs to be thought about at the beginning and continuously with the understanding that the best solution is going to emerge in practice. You won't be able to see it fully in advance, but planning for, for these questions is the best way to be prepared for it when it happens. And vitally, as you said, it's a strategic process and it's a matter of organizational strategy. Yes. I think one of the big challenges the medical community is facing is the idea that we should be scaling up projects when it's projects on their own tend to be kind of consortia of different organizations, often they're public private partnerships, which on their own don't typically have the standalone resources needed to do things in house. They rely on the skills and contributions of the participating organizations. But in the medical community, there's there's very much less talk about scaling those organizations. You have some of the um, huge nonprofit organizations, um, lovingly called the big international NGOs or bingos, <laughs> and you know they have two hundred million dollars plus annual revenue, 
um, and work in many, many countries and um, with varying degrees of connectedness or a real sense of rootedness in the communities that they work. Um, and then you have lots of little grassroots organizations. Um, and it's been a common pattern in the in-health industry, and I, I imagine in other areas as well, as well, that it's usually smaller, very innovative organizations that come up with really new models of care, new technologies, new ways of delivering health care. And then at some point, eventually, they either get hired by or kind of um, copied or absorbed by larger organizations. Um, and that's a really complex process, and it's, it's interesting. And these different types of organizations, um, you know, the role of industries of health has changed a lot in recent years, with more of them taking a stronger leadership role in coordinating in-health and digital health projects. I think that's really appropriate. It's very important. Um, and there's not enough conversation about ministries as organizations scaling their capacity um, yes. as distinct from the ability of any single project or any single implementation to scale. Fascinating. Fascinating. You touched on a, a, an interesting topic, a many interesting topics. So I'm interested in this question of um, an idea emerging in the sense that you're a science-based organization or you're a scientist, medical scientist, as you say. How um, able are you as an organization to take risks and how important has that been in a sense or to, 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 uh, cons to consider failure or to, to, to take on board projects or approaches to projects bearing in mind that they, you know, it might not work, but this is a first step. And hopefully if you can, you know, get insight from that, it will help you to get to the ultimate solution. That's an interesting question. I would like to say that we're very good at taking smart risks. And there are a few reasons for that. I don't know if I'll diagnose it correctly on the first go, but I'll, I'll just offer a few reflections. Um, when we got started, Josh and I were very young. And we were committed first and foremost to not causing any harm in the communities where I worked and not wasting people's time. But beyond that, we saw real value in what we were doing. People were telling us it was valuable and no one else was doing it. And we weren't the one, as young as we were and not being engineers by background, it wasn't intuitive that we would be the ones to do this. But we kind of said, if we don't do this, who's going to do it? Who else will do this? And so we just went for it. And um, it's happened again and again that we've approached some new task, you know, most recently doing a lot of new work on community-based disease surveillance, trying to track outbreaks faster. And we kind of initially feel like, gosh, we're in over our heads. This is really hard. Surely there will be experts who have figured this out already. Surely. <laughs> yes. And then we're really working in it, and we end up finding really basic things that nobody's been doing. And it's really frustrating. The amount of disintegration between the, the primary healthcare delivery system at the community level and the 
disease surveillance systems, they're totally siloed in most of the places we work. And when we actually started comparing the, the actual information that's collected, it's mostly redundant. We could collect most of the data that we needed for disease surveillance just by making better use of the data that was already being generated as a result of us supporting primary health care at the doorstep. And so, you know, that was one of those things like, you know, we, we weren't the greatest experts in, in the room on this topic. And there are a lot of truly brilliant people who have dedicated their lives to this. And we couldn't do it without their contributions. But at the same time, it would have been mistaken if we had said, you know, this feels risky and let's just not do it because we're not um, the most experienced people in the room. Um, so that's that's kind of a philosophy we kept with us. You know, I was an entrepreneur before I started PhD studies. Um, I would also add that I'm a very multidisciplinary researcher and my main area of research is in human-centered design, engaging with the social sciences and in particular ethnography and the engineering design community, as well as global health and medical science. And I have publications in both areas. And um, in general, I think that social scientists tend to take complexity much more seriously. That's a big overgeneralization, but I think it, it holds true as a trend. And also the way social scientists or even designers, artists, you know, in literature, the way complexity is treated is honestly more complex than the sort of idea of complexity in the natural sciences. There's a common view in the natural sciences that what we need to address implementation complexities is to spend more time breaking interventions down into reasonable components and testing which of those components are most important and how they influence the broader outcome. And that kind of reductionist, let's break things into pieces approach, I believe is a poor way of making sense of complexity. Um, much poorer than doing doing field work, doing prototyping, having uh, bandwidth for, for iteration in the particular settings where new technologies are being used. Fascinating, fascinating. I'm mindful of the time, um, Isaac. I, I, one or two, I, one question I would be quite interested in. I would, I, I could talk a lot more about this technology. It's a very important uh, and, and fascinating uh, topic. Now, you mentioned at the beginning that you know uh, you hadn't given a tremendous thought to the the question of a business model, and you are a nonprofit. Um, can you talk a little bit about that decision? Also, I guess in the context, there does seem to be a lot. Well, we, we hear a lot of um, about uh, impact investment and for profit investment, and a lot of money coming into various you know social domains, social social innovation, social entrepreneurship. Um, what 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 role do you think, um, from your own experience, is there for the the, the non profit? And uh, yeah, to talk a little bit about how you see medic mobile in that context. Absolutely. So when we got started, we weren't thinking very proactively 
about the business model, about the revenue model, because it hadn't occurred to us that there would be one other than kind of the traditional philanthropic model. And that was something that we encountered um, in the course of our ongoing work. And we took advantage of it right away. Um, I was already familiar broadly with the idea of social entrepreneurship, um, thanks to Echoing Green. And I was um, interested in having a more diverse um, revenue, diverse revenue streams. And um, we ended up doing quite well with it. For the first few years, it was about 50-50, where half of our our budget was um, based on implementation contracts with um, partners, most of them other nonprofit organizations. Um, And then about 50% of it was from the kind of impact philanthropy um, or venture philanthropy or social innovation um, funding community. And so we were kind of funding our implementation efforts with earned income on, on a basically at cost basis. And then we were using that sort of impact philanthropy money for investing in our design process and in building technologies, which we could then make free and open source. And one of our very first and um, most long-term helpful funding partners has been the Milago Foundation. Yes, yes. I've, I've, I've spoken to Kevin a few times. He's been a great supporter. Great work he's doing. Good, good. He's um, continued to write in Stanford Social Innovation Review some pieces I love. Uh, one about getting out of the office if you want to know what's going on with programs. Um, and another one about market failures and impact philanthropy. Um the, the latter one's really relevant here because he essentially argues that um, you know the the idea of of making an investment in a company that will be at least a little profitable relatively quickly and address a social issue is difficult to find. Yes, and the more you're focused on not just poor communities, but the poorest communities, yes. not just challenging settings, but the most challenging settings, the more you're dealing with real market failures and people who genuinely don't have enough ability to pay, um, it, it becomes harder and harder to find ways to build organizations um, that can be profitable through that kind of income generating activity. And that resonated with me because I think it's very much been the case for us. You know, we started substantially relying on philanthropy, partly just because that was who we were and we had assumed that would be necessary. On several occasions, we had considered spinning out a for-profit arm into a hybrid model, taking a round of investment, being able to invest that in our product. Um, And we've had enough income over time that we would have been able to make the case that we could do that. But each time we mapped it out, in terms of the specific partner organizations we'd worked with in the past and what their ability to pay was. And we could really see, you know, if, if we want to do this in a way that's profitable, there's a specific set of partners who we can't really afford to work with, or we can only afford to work with two or three a year. 
and another set of partners we have to pursue a lot more of. And um, in our case, we work in the hardest to reach communities. We're trying to serve the poorest of the poor, and we didn't feel like changing that. And so in our case, the nonprofit model continued to make sense. And as we've grown, um, we've, we've increasingly started to reflect the broader business model for our industry. And what that's, what that has meant is that we don't quite have, um, we have substantially less than 50% earned income now. I think it's actually closer to 25% in our last fiscal year. Um, and so we're still doing that, but, um, it's, it's been interesting to observe how and why that happens. So for a while, we had um, targets for earned income that were kind of linked conceptually to the idea of sustainability. Um, what we've seen over time is actually that our earned income can be more volatile than the philanthropic income. And partly because, like a lot of social enterprises, our earned income is basically like charitable money once removed. It sort of can be traced back to, you know, a client who themselves are a nonprofit organization, or it can be traced back to government funding um, after one or two hops. And so... A lot of our, you know, if you talk about, for example, a change in political administration in the United States that might have dramatic effects on funding for aid, um, when we looked at it, we realized, you know, our our earned income is even more vulnerable, like much more vulnerable to that than our philanthropic revenue. And so why in the name of sustainability would we be aggressively pursuing these, this this particular stream over that other particular stream. And this is very much an ongoing conversation that we're, we're still having right now and, you know, continuing to learn and, and we're in an industry that's very much changing. So it's not like I have the, the final insight uh, <laughs> to share with, with you or your listeners, but it's, it's been a very interesting journey. Fascinating. It's been a very interesting podcast, Isaac, a uh, very interesting conversation. And um, thank you so much for sharing all your thoughtful response to 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 the, the this the, the the what you're doing to the to all of the the great initiatives at Medic Mobile and and um, it's been it's been very rich and uh, I wish you the very best of success in the future. I'm very glad to hear that. I always ramble a little bit when I'm put on the spot, but I'm glad to hear that you thought it was interesting and hopefully some of your listeners will. Thanks, Isaac. Thank you for listening to the Inspiring Social Entrepreneur Podcast. I hope you found this interview inspiring. Please make sure to visit www.inspiringsocialentrepreneurs.com and subscribe to make sure you don't miss any future podcasts. PopTech has been catalyzing social impact for two decades via its renowned fellows program, incubation initiatives, thought-provoking salons and conferences. The PopTech 2017 conference takes place October 19th to 21st. You can book tickets now and find out more information.